again. Welcome to the late podcast. That's the law according to Eric. Today is Wednesday, October 22nd. And uh, although there's probably only three or four of you that have managed to download the first yet to be published podcast, <laughs> uh, we're broadcasting again with our in studio guest, David Martinez from Contoured Solutions, IT support provider extraordinaire, uh, touching on a very uh, important topic that has become near and dear to my heart uh, <laughs> as of about three o'clock this afternoon, and that is what to do when your servers crash. And your system goes down, and how to avert disaster so that the rest of my uh, loyal listeners, fellow solo practitioners, family and friends, don't find themselves at close to nine o'clock on the you know in the evening Wednesday, sitting with their IT guy waiting for a backup to restore itself onto a server with you know hundreds of gigabytes left of data uh, to roll over. So uh, that's the premise for this evening's podcast. And so again, our, our special studio guest is David Martinez. He is the founder and um, president of Contoured Solutions, Inc., an IT consulting firm based out of Pomona, California, with clientele in various industries throughout Southern California, Los Angeles, Riverside, San Bernardino, etc. And so, uh, Dave, without the fancy, uh, witty rhetoric of our first podcast... Perhaps we should just jump right in and tell our listening audience what happened to my servers today, because I don't really know. And uh, what can my, you know, what can I and other small solo firms that have their own computer equipment do to avoid a similar problem? Well, in this particular case, Eric, uh, thank you again for having me. <laughs> yeah. the, I'll, I'll, I'll be involuntarily. Um, Basically, what happened uh, is that the uh, drives, uh, as they were arranged in the server, uh, failed, which basically pr provided a scenario in which whatever was on there at that exact moment in time is essentially gone, is essentially lost. Now, however, fortunately enough, um, we have uh, what's called a nearline, you know, nightly backup uh, that occurs every evening at around 10 p.m. Um, that takes a snapshot of all the data that's on the hard drive every evening at 10 and saves it. So that way, in the event of something cataclysmic like this, um, we can essentially you know, buy brand new hard drives, which we did, install them in the server, and then using a special boot CD, say, okay, take this snapshot that the, of the server that we took at you know, 10 p.m. last night and now apply it and restore it and kind of go from there. Um, and that's basically what we're in the process of doing right now. Okay, so Dave, help me understand, because throughout the course of this disastrous evening, I've heard terms like RAID 0, RAID 1, NAS, drives, appliances. Disaster recovery. Dis yeah, disaster recovery, which I don't feel like I've completely recovered. Oh, you're not talking about me personally. I understand. <laughs> but so tell me what some of these things are and what can small business owners uh, do or, or what, what are the correct <laughs> questions to ask uh, of their own IT folks? Well, first and foremost, um, and this get, yeah, ends up getting a little further into the realm of like of like more technical kind of IT oriented types of things. But I'll I'll try to break this down in a way that's uh, easy and accessible to the average business owner. Um, in most scenarios, like in an off in a uh, typical office like this, you're going to have a, a situation where multiple people are going to be wanting wanting to share data. Uh, you know. Uh, that's all stored in one single place. Now, oftentimes when people first kind of start up, they start like on a single person's computer uh, that has a single hard drive in it. Um, 
you know, in a scenario like that, you're kind of you're kind of inviting disaster to some extent because that one hard drive is probably the most commonly fail, you know, common and most easy to fail things in a system because it's still one of the few things in a computer that's based off of like you know a, you know a certain amount of electricity and moving parts and that sort of thing. So eventually, hard drives go down. So what you do have. So what people normally invest in once they get to a certain level are servers or other storage-type appliances that spread information across multiple disks, like say a RAID 1 is two disks, or a RAID 5 would be at least four disks, so that if one hard drive fails, your system can keep running, or you haven't necessarily lost anything, and things will just sort of keep moving forward. Okay, so let me get this straight. A RAID 1 is two hard drives, a RAID 5 is four hard drives. Mm-hmm. I had a RAID 0, which I don't know what that means. Well, a RAID 0 is what some people will configure their computers with. Uh, it's designed for performance rather than for redundancy. So in a RAID 0 situation, two hard drives, let's just say they've got you know 100 gigabytes apiece, are merged together to make a single 200 gigabyte hard drive, which gives you the performance benefit of of pulling and reading and writing data from two disks simultaneously. But in that scenario, if either of the two fail, whatever was on that enti- you know that one single merged volume is now irrecoverable. So at that point, you're even, you end up having to rely on external backup mechanisms. So basically, you're saying that my configuration was more sizzle and less steak. <laughs> in that regard. And again, uh, I, I must apologize. The uh, config... The fact that it was configured in this way was unbeknownst to me. Um, Wait, weren't you the guy that set it up? <laughs> I don't think I was the guy who actually configured it, but... Oh, I think you're right. I think it came that way from Dell. Either way. Um, that being said, a RAID 0 is never a configuration that we would recommend for uh, a server-type system. But regardless of hard drive configurations, disasters happen. I mean, even in more robust and redundant situations, you know, sometimes data gets damaged, sometimes things, you know, catch fire, sometimes data gets lost, which is why having both, uh, having backup and disaster recovery is very important. So yesterday we spoke about the cloud and what the cloud really is modernly, not, not the startings of what people refer to as the cloud being the way in which the internet is depicted in a diagram, uh, a technical diagram, which I, by the way, for my listening audience, I did know that uh, ahead of time. But, uh, but now we're talking about uh, cloud-based storage or backup. Mm-hmm. And this is something that, to be quite frank, I have not used and had not, but I'm certainly strongly considering it now, mm-hmm. being here as we approach the 9 o'clock hour on a Wednesday night, uh, and I, you know, I'm not watching my DVR of, of Sons of Anarchy, and you know, Scandal is on, uh, and I'm going to miss all my shows. So now maybe is a good good segue into what this cloud really does practically for you know these small business owners like myself. What what benefits um, can we get out of this so-called cloud? Okay. Well, let me first step back uh, and address. To kind of talk a little bit about what you're talking about, you know, the fact that we're here at 9 p.m., you know, recovering the server and whatnot. In any scenario, a business has to recognize that there's a difference between backup, which is simply having another copy of my information in some other form that is potentially recoverable, 
and disaster recovery, which is some mechanism by which I can restore myself to normal working operations in a reasonable time frame or whatever time frame is as at least acceptable for me and my business practices. Now, the solution that we had, that was put in place here at the office is kind of you know encapsulated both backup and disaster recovery in that we have an externally external copy of just of all your raw data and all your raw files and all your raw information but it was stored in such a way so that if like is happened now the hard drives failed or even let's just say this you know the server itself blew up and we had to buy a whole other server and bring it in here the d- the data that was stored on your hard drive could then be restored in the exact state that it was you know on the old on the old system and things could keep moving along in a, albeit, you know, I mean, it's a little frustrating at, you know, sort of 9 p.m., but in such a way that doesn't require many, many, many more hours of, of building everything from scratch because we have this sort of snapshot. Now, that being said, I, offsite backups or cloud-based backups are still recommended, not because they would help you avoid a situation like this, but because it is additional protection from other disasters that, you know, may involve you know, fire or earthquake or something happening to this building or this facility, which could potentially kill not only just your server, but also the, the, the attached hard drive that is backing up your server's data on a regular basis. All right. Well, I don't mean to be the redneck of the bunch. Uh, and maybe it's just because <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not nearly as technical as I once was uh, many moons ago. But what you're describing sounds an awful lot to me like putting on two condoms. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, isn't one enough... Absolutely. You know what? Um, yes and no. I would say that from a purely technical standpoint, if you need to recover a file, you only need to recover it from one backup system. However, life being what it is, disasters being what they are, problems can come at you from 101 different angles. So in this particular case, yes, we were able to recover relatively easily from, you know, albeit in a time-consuming way from a you know an attached hard drive here on your system. However, if let's just say that backup hard drive failed, let's just say again, there was a theft, maybe some some thieves broke into your office and stole a bunch of equipment and just did a smash and grab. Maybe there was a fire here in the building. God forbid the big one hits and you know this office in this whole building caves in. It's good to know that you have at least one other copy in a completely different remote and you know hopefully secure location that you can rely on. It's always good to know for the for for your peace of mind that there's at least one more copy out there that you can use. I mean, it may not be the most easiest thing to restore and get to, but at least it's there. So that way, you know, your client files, your emails, and your other data are still there and they're still recoverable in the event of major catastrophe. Well, you make the you know you make this cloud-based uh, storage sound like an awfully wonderful thing. But you know who probably doesn't think it's so wonderful? Who's that? Every single celebrity that took a new photo of themselves <laughs> and put it up on that cloud. Uh-huh. Now, but, but that leads me to this next question, and we touched on it a little bit yesterday, in that how is the security? Now, and I'm not suggesting, I, I, Lord knows, I don't have any nude photos of me floating out on any cloud, and that's a good thing. <laughs> but I do have on my servers confidential client information financial information for my clients again we you know the firm here practices bankruptcy we do a great deal of chapter 11 which is not necessarily a dead broke insolvent you know typical bankrupt that you think about yeah yeah. Um, you know and we have a lot of correspondence communications with uh, trustees 
appointed by the court, opposing counsel, between our clients. These are all things that are that every attorney is really tasked with ensuring the confidentiality and the safety and the protection of these files. Yet I turn on, uh, you know, Channel 11 TMZ or, or I go to PerezHilton.com mm-hmm. and yet there's another selfie photo of some nude celebrity out there again, <laughs> uh, you know, for the world to now see. So how, how does one reconcile with that? I mean, you know, is this really just a problem that Apple has? With their with this you know iPhone cloud or mm-hmm. is this a real problem in general that we all have to worry about? Well, Eric, I'm glad you asked that. So there's a difference between um, cloud mechanisms that are designed for sort of sharing and collaboration, like your you know your typical you know I, Apple's iCloud or even Google Drive, because that information is designed to be shared with and distributed, albeit maybe a more close knit group of people than say what Apple's you know iCloud is. Other types of solutions, and the one that I personally usually recommend is one called iBackup Professional. What they rely on is this, for to, and because obviously information like yours is 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 not unique in, in many industries. I mean, people have to worry about you know you know client confidentiality, credit card numbers, uh, you know Sar- Sarbanes-Oxley, HIPAA compliance, all these other sort of things. Can I can I break in for a second? Because I wish you would. Thank you. Because you said something called iCloud Professional. I backup. I backup. Sorry, I backup professional. And David, here's what I have to ask. And this is, I bet you, the four or five listeners out there are going to want to know the same thing. Okay. How come Microsoft adds the word professional after every other bit of software, and it costs <laughs> thousands of dollars more? What is it really giving you? I have Windows Seven, and I have Windows Seven Professional. What's one giving me that the other doesn't? Because when I sit down and I bring up Excel or Word or I read an email, it feels pretty much the same. Well, here's the thing. Uh, to be honest, the name, the word itself means little to nothing. Different companies will use that. Like we've got our normal product, and then we've got this other product that's got better stuff. So what can we call it? We can't call it super duper. We're not going to call it like the super size, uh, the Big Mac of you know Microsoft Office Big Mac. Let's attach a word that implies a certain I don't know professionalism to it. So they just use the word professional. But the fact. The, the word professional will mean something entirely different between Microsoft and this other company. It's just a word that gets attached to higher level or you know products that are more that give features that you know you know maybe working professionals might need or want. It's not a satisfactory answer, but that's the way that's the answer. I mean, so really, what you're saying is it's not really more bang for the buck; it's more buck for the bang. <laughs> does that, what does that even mean? Well, I mean, in other words, in other words, I'm spending more to get features that I may really not use or need. But that's up to you. you. Know, that's you can look at the features and go, do I need that or do I not? If I don't need that, then I don't need the professional edition. I may be a, a business professional, but I may not need the, the professional edition of X and Y Z and product. Look, we're getting off topic. You, you are right. We are getting off topic. The whole point is, if I back a professional, the way that they protect. Uh, client information is this. So you say, okay, I want to back up all the files in this particular directory to your whole ba- you know, backup cloud. But wait a minute. But that, that means my files are being stored in somebody else's facility and I'm relying to a large extent on their security and their security measures. Yes, with the important caveat that when you first do the software installation, the software will ask you, give us this, pr- you know, type in a key right now that is a, a, a private encryption key that only you have that will basically go back and encrypt all the data that's, that's being backed up on our servers in such a way that 
not even we can go in there and break in and look at your information. Like, the information will still be there, but it's going to be in a completely encrypted form. Now, you, the user, have to understand that if you lose your key, you're also screwed. Because only that key will unlock this, you know, sort of data. But it does ensure that information that I back up and that I store at an offsite facility, even if that facility is is raided by pirates and they all grab all the hard drives and start rummaging through the data, is not able to be compromised without the key that you specified when you first installed it. And that ensures the the safety of the data. That ensures compliance with any whatever compliance you know that you and your industry may have to deal with. Um, and that's how you do that. But again. Solutions like that aren't designed for being able to collaborate and share photos with mom and dad. They're designed to basically be a, a, a secure warehouse for my information that me and only me can get into. All right, well, those Jennifer Lawrence nude selfies weren't meant to be shared with mom and dad either. Yeah, but they were meant. But but they are. They were in a medium and in a format and in a in a, in a in a cloud in an environment that is designed with sharing in mind. Not necessarily that you want to share everything that you have, but sharing is part of that that mechanism and in order to ensure sharing there are certain things that they could and could not do and one of them is not necessarily protect the data as well as they would have liked do you think celebrities are ignorant to these kinds of things well i mean i think clearly they are the fact that so many of them had their pictures compromised now again i'm not going to go into this whole debate about you know whether they should or, you know that's their business obviously but like anything else it's my business whether or not i want to ha- you know keep an expensive watch in the front seat of my car now, if my car gets broken into, obviously it's the fault of the thieves that did it, but maybe I should have used a little bit more prudence in how I managed my assets and how available I made them. Okay, so let's let's move on then to, I mean, we've talked about the cloud uh, ad nauseum, and we've talked about off-site data backup and mm-hmm. on-site backup solutions. Yeah. And uh, for people out there that do what I did and just do a backup every night, once a night, you know, 10 p.m. when mm-hmm. all work is done, uh, is that really going to be enough? It will, you know, I guess what I'm asking is, is there a solution out there that is cost-effective for a small uh, or solo practitioner yeah. that will give them everything? Because clearly I'm going to lose some data, yeah. right? Whatever work we did today, I mean... Lucky today wasn't a super busy day. Yeah. You know, but whatever work we did today, we're going to lose. So, or, or we're going to have to recreate. Yeah. Um, is there a solution out there that will really address all of these needs where there's no data loss and everything picks up right where it left off up to that last minute before failure? Well, there are solutions for backup and data recovery span the, an enormous gamut of, 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 of features and functionality and cost. I mean, everything from from a, a simple cloud-based solution like, like CrashPlan, which can, to some extent, with maybe albeit a little delay, uh, do a sort of real-time kind of cloud-based backup. Um, I mean, that has its own sort of, you know, caveats and things you have to be aware of as well. To even much more expensive solutions that large enterprise-type businesses use where they've got multiple servers that keep real-time redundant copies of other servers so that way if the first servers go down, the other servers can kick in automatically and no one's any the wiser. But, you know, what, what usually has to happen is you, the business owner, have to sit down with your IT professional and discuss, here, in my opinion, is what I would consider to be an acceptable amount of data loss for a day. It could be a day. It could be, you know, four hours. It could be an hour. Whatever, whatever, whatever that you know, whatever that maximum number is of, of what you of what you would consider to be an acceptable amount of data loss, 
that has to be communicated to your IT professional. And then your IT professional can then propose solutions. You know, some, depending on the environment or depending on the type of information that, that needs to be backed up, some may not be the most cost-effective things in the world for you as a business. And so sometimes compromises have to be made. But that's a conversation that every business person needs to have with their IT professional about every aspect of the data. Their, their normal documents and files, their accounting information like QuickBooks and those sort of things, their email information, because all those different things may have different mechanisms that are required to back up that information. All right, now then here's a stupid question. There are no stupid questions in this podcast, Eric. Thank you, David. Uh, can a backup occur while users are working? Uh, technically, I mean, again, different backups employ different mechanisms, uh, but there are many backups that can work while users are working. Uh, oftentimes, it is not uh, recommended because uh, backup tasks, because they are drawing resources from the server because they're copying you know, large amounts of data in a, in a, in a, in a rapid fashion uh, and because of other mechanisms that they employ to kind of get you know, a real-time you know, snapshot of information uh, can bog down the server's resources and then impair you, the user, during the daytime. So usually what's recommended is, look, evening time because, A, that's what, uh, presumably when people are offline, and also, too, because it gives you a very easy point in time reference of like, okay, that means that this backup will reflect up to everything that I did yesterday. Not like, oh, well, it's, the backup occurred at, say, 4 o'clock today, so, gosh, what happened? Did I finish that thing before or after? For You know what I mean? Like, there's not that guessing. It's just, I know that it was, at, it was in the middle of the night, which means that it covered everything that happened that day, and that's about it. Right, but what I'm getting at is this idea that can I minimize data loss? For example, if I ran a backup at 2 p.m. every afternoon and then again at 10 p.m. every evening. Okay, so to answer to your question, what, you're, what you would want is something that occurs, like you're saying, on a more regular basis. So the first and easiest uh, option for that, at least with documents and files, because uh, those are the easiest things to capture in a backup, would be something like Crash, uh, Crash Plan Pro, which is a backup solution that's... Well, there's that professional again. Do they, is there like a regular crash plan? Uh, you know, maybe there is. I, I'm just asking, because, you know, okay. Bottom go, go line, ahead. Go ahead, yeah. Crash Plan the way it basically works is you tell it which you know, files and which directories to go after. And then what it does is as it detects changes in those files and directories, it is constantly then backing them up to the cloud. Now, CrashPlan in general works pretty well. Uh, some of the issues that I've seen with it are things like uh, depending on the size of the files that you're regularly changing, maybe you know you could be incurring a decent amount of internet uh, sort of bandwidth on a regular basis, which depending on how much bandwidth you have may be a little bit of a problem. And on top of that, I've seen cases in which after a change was made to a file, if CrashPlan was backing it up, the file was inaccessible to the user until CrashPlan finished with it and then moved on to the next file. So there are small little annoyances like that that end up having to be dealt with, but it does, for the most part, allow you to um, to have uh, fairly up-to-date copies, fairly real-time up-to-date copies of your regular documents and files, your Word docs, your PDFs, your Excel docs, uh, in a location that's outside of the office that's regularly backed up. Other types of files, like, say, QuickBooks, um, where it's more of a database, where multiple people may be accessing it at the same time and changing different parts of the file can be a little trickier because uh, you can't necessarily tie that file up while people are working on it. Um, and that point, you may end up having to rely on other pieces of software, which can, if not necessarily up to the minute, maybe up to the hour, give you a, a decent copy that you can sort of fall back to and whatnot. Okay. And then are there any uh, low-cost or free solutions out there 
for uh, a small office owner or a small business owner or so, you know solo practitioner uh, that's kind of kind of easy to set up. Maybe these guys don't have IT budgets or you know the ability to contact uh, the outstanding level of professional that I can when I have an IT problem. Well, I would say a couple things. Number one, uh, when it comes to your office computers, if you're using office computers uh, to do any kind of business, even if it's a home business, I would say always get, and you're going to love me for this one, always make sure you get the professional edition of Windows because the professional edition of Windows have built-in backup facilities where, and again, you don't have to pay for anything extra for the software. The only thing you have to buy is maybe like a little external hard drive you can get usually for give or take maybe about 100 bucks. You plug the hard drive into your you know, USB port of your computer. It probably has a few of them. And then the built-in Windows backup software can be set up so that at some interval, again, I usually recommend middle of the night, your data from your you know, PC or whatever is being backed up on some regular basis. And you don't have to spend any extra money for that. Now, as far as other quote-unquote low-cost software uh, for, you know, for small businesses and other individuals, the ones I usually recommend would be either like um, Acronis which does something similar to Windows Backup, but gives you some faster and easier recovery options, at least for you know for PCs. Um, for offsite backup, I always tell people either a Crash Plan uh, Pro because uh, of its kind of real-time capabilities, uh, or if security is of as of is more of the utmost concern to you, uh, iBackup Professional. Uh, and even that can be set up to be to back up multiple times a day. Uh, but again, keep in mind if data is being backed up, you're potentially incurring either a performance hit on your computer, which may slow things down for you in the middle of the day, which you may be not want, or also potentially internet bandwidth during the middle of your working day. So you have to take this into consideration when you're just designing a backup and disaster recovery plan. All right, so I'm drawing two lessons out of this, two morals of this story. Uh, the first is that there, there really is no 100% glitch-free guarantee, always uptime, never down, kind of system. At the end of the day, if you're working off of any kind of computer, a computer uses a hard drive, which has lots of moving parts and spins and, you know, has to function and, it, you know, like any other machine or car or, or you know, laundry, washer, dryer, whatever, mm-hmm. parts sometimes go bad, things sometimes happen. Uh, what, what we're able to do after disaster strikes is really more important than protecting from the disaster itself because it really seems like there is no surefire way to protect yourself. I don't want to say there's none. What I want to say is that, again, it's one of these things that has to be taken on a, on a case-by-case basis because what you're describing is absolutely what can, what can be done because, I mean, obviously much larger companies can't afford to just be down for several hours in the middle of the day. Um, but, you know, larger companies have huge budgets for investing in large amounts of redundancy. So multiple, multiple, multiple pieces of hardware, which are, have no other purpose other than to, be, to sit there and be readily available backups for their primary you know, hardware that's you know, sitting there and working and whatnot. So what always, the, the conversation always has to be talk to your IT professional as far as the level of uptime and the level of exposure or the limited amount of exposure you'd like to see within your business and what solutions are in place that will make that happen. You as a business owner may look at the numbers for, for, for a, for a 100% uptime and 100% guaranteed uptime and, and, and up to the minute you know, recovery uh, as not entirely worth it's not entirely worth it. Like the work that would be involved for you to have to recover that information is less costly to you than the cost of, of having that in place. But that's a conversation you and your IT professional have to have. Well, that's the next moral of the of the story that I was going to bring up is this idea that cheap is expensive. 
Certainly can be. And in my case, it certainly is because <laughs> when when we first started in 2009, when we were, you know, when I was saying, okay, I'm going to open my very own office and, you know, I'm not going to work for another company anymore and I'm going to be all on my own, I had to do so on a budget. And part of that budget was, okay, well, what am I going to sacrifice versus what do I really need to to be uh, successful in the practice of law? What can you live with? Right. And, of course, at that time, you think, okay, well, I need Westlaw or LexisNexis and I need, you know, um, accounting software and time management and client tracking and all those things. And then, okay, well, I guess I need a server Right, but I should probably buy more than one. But I guess I can just live with just one, and then we could convert some old PCs that are kind of good and make them servers for certain things. And then it, from there, it was okay. Well, what do we do for backup? You know, I remember back in like the late you know nineties. Oh, here when, it comes. When I, it's right when I actually was in <laughs> IT. Back in the day, we used to use little tapes, like DAT tapes, oh, yeah. as backup. Mm-hmm. Right, and those uh, tape. Recorders, if you will, those little mini tape machines that you would have in your in your server. Well, man, they used to break down all the time. Those were the worst built, you know, devices. I, you know, I can remember to this day, like constantly going through this, uh, where the t- you know the tape drive just didn't work anymore. Yeah. Um, but my cheap is expensive lesson uh, for the day is that I, you know, I I lost eight hours worth of data and work, mm-hmm. uh, essentially. Because I didn't invest in a better offsite storage system, um, and to be quite frank, I, you know, I could use the excuse that I felt more secure having all the files on my own internal server, you know, that were strictly under my control and Dave's control, and I don't really have the same risk of some outside, uh, you know, hacker group out of Russia breaking into my files. But the reality is, I'm not Target or Home Depot. Nobody's, you know, going after my stuff. Um, and so my cheapest expensive lesson is that I should have been uh, better prepared for disaster when it strikes, you know, for downtime. Um, and I should have had a better disaster recovery solution because while perhaps today uh, losing a day's worth of data is only a painful lesson, uh, for somebody that could mean the deadline uh, of a filing, you know, and if a motion is filed late, Oftentimes, it won't be considered by the court. Your, your client could lose something very significant um, in the event that you have a disaster like this and that the, the, the correct type of disaster recovery strategy is not implemented. So that's my, you know, my, my cheapest expensive lesson of the, of, the, of the year, I would say. No, and I, and I get all that. I mean, it's, it's one of these things that I'm sure even in my business, there are probably things that an insurance you know, provider or a or an attorney like yourself would look at it and go like, whoa, 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 what do you mean you're not protecting yourself that way? But it's one of these things where if it's not immediately within your purview, you've got business to do, and so you're just going to go ahead and do what's what, what's immediately in front of you and what you feel like you can reasonably afford. I mean, I have clients who pay me to regularly update documentation on what their disaster recovery scenarios are, and and we and schedule you know you know several you know at least a few times a year. T- test runs of like okay cool let's unplug the server how do we get things back up and running again you know and like you know uh, and, and money that's spent on on outside you know systems that they, they are backed up to on a regular basis um but again it's 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 a conversation that has to be had with what do we have in place now if disaster struck how long would it take us to get back online and is that an acceptable amount of time and if not what else can we do Okay, so there you have it, again, from our uh, very special guest, Dave Martinez of Contoured Solutions. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask Dave now, 
to uh, to freestyle with me for a little bit. No. We're, well, we're going to switch topics because, to be quite honest, again, this remember this is live, unedited, uncut, uninterrupted. Uh, so <laughs> as as this flows, uh, this is exactly what's going on at the moment. There's there's no tricky editing involved. Um, we're going to switch topics a little bit because we've got at least another thirty minutes until this backup is done, um, and so. Uh, Dave, I'm going to talk a little bit about a topic that I had heard discussed on the radio, and I want to get your your feeling about it. Okay, and it, it's a serious topic, and you know I'm 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 not joking. Now. I'm giving you the segue that you know this is real. All right. Uh, I listen to a variety of different podcasts mm-hmm. myself, and only recently, I'll be honest, I started by listening to your Dave Martinez your podcast. Thank you. And I was so. Um, moved by the whole idea and just having the freedom to kind of get out there and talk about what you want and you know bring up interesting topics and and you actually get a little bit of an audience so I said okay I want to I want to learn more about this so I started searching and finding podcasts of uh, presented by different people that I either had some sort of interest in you know in the pro wrestling world and you know these guys that are now retired but they interview like all the famous wrestlers from when I was a kid and oh nice you know so stuff like that and there's so there's one in particular podcast that I listen to I'm not afraid to give it a shout out it's called the security brief and it's um, presented by a man named Paul Violas who apparently is a long uh, history in law enforcement and now he's in private practices you know he consults for large companies and for the government on security you yeah. know issues and things like that and I was listening to the most recent edition of his podcast and he said a very startling figure in that the business of human trafficking yeah is a 32 billion dollar a year business billion billion with a b oh my goodness and the scenarios that people young women and often children are lured into what ultimately becomes a life of servitude or prostitution or literally like modern day slavery um the it, it uses uh, modern technology and online, you know, internet based um, bait. Yeah. Uh, for lack of a better word, I mean, imagine uh, a fishing pole, and at the end you've got you know the one bait that attracts more fish than anything else, and that's what these predators use. But they use it online in some sort of computerized digital format. And what I'm maybe I so I guess I have uh, three three children. Yeah. Two daughters and a son. My daughters are older. Um, one is 15, one is 12. And, you know, the girls are at that age where the Internet is a big part of their everyday life. Their schools post their assignments online. Mm-hmm. They regularly email with teachers and faculty and staff. They check their progress online. You know, uh, they do their research online using the Internet. Uh, they find their sources for, you know, their papers and reports uh, by the internet, and so they're on it all the time. And to be quite frank, uh, neither my wife nor I have the time or the inclination to sit over their shoulders and watch them research, you know, Moby Dick or something that you know we, we've already been there and done that. And I have no desire to go back to high school. Hmm. Um, although I, I, I will say that socially, high school rocked for me. But <laughs> putting that aside, sure it did. I'm just saying. No, but good. you know, putting that aside. Good to know. Um, but this is, you know, this is a real serious. Uh, what I would call really like an epidemic. Yeah. Um, and I don't believe it affects only very poor and third world countries. No. I just don't think that we see it as much in our own media. 
um, maybe not here in Los Angeles as much, um, or maybe it's not as big of a story here as it would be in, you know, Mudlick, Iowa, where it's a very small town, you know, and, and everybody knows everybody. And so if something happens to one of their townsfolk, it like affects, you know, the entire, yeah. you know, 85 population town that they live in. Uh, but Dave, what, you know, what, what is that all about? What is, how, how are people using the internet uh, to, to lure children and, and people into these, you know, what, what is, what, what, it, what becomes really, uh, you know, a, a bold-faced lie. They, they're promised better lives and better jobs or, or, or what? I mean, how does this work? I mean, I, and I don't, I'm not suggesting that you necessarily know, you know, like, like, not like you're in the practice of this, but, you know, I guess what I'm asking you is that I'm a big fan of shows like Breaking Bad yeah. and Sons of Anarchy mm-hmm. and, um, you know, uh, The Walking Dead and some of the more, you know, push the envelope, freak show, love freak show, or I'm sorry, American Horror Story, Coven, freak show, fantastic. Yeah. All right. Now, every now and then in these shows, there's a reference made to the dark web, right? This internet that the deep web right like you know deep space nine web there's there's apparently (laughs) there's a part of the internet that google doesn't know about or can't find Uh, well so help help our help our seven listeners understand yeah what is the deep web you know and is it is it really like you know run by two two or three dozen pimple-faced teenagers (laughs) uh, that really control the world you know one of the funniest urban legends if you will was that the uh, world is secretly controlled by the Illuminati. And the Illuminati is supposed to be a group of, uh, you know, an underground group of middle-aged Jewish men, businessmen. Uh, and they all have their piece of Hollywood, the media, banking, finance, Wall Street, you know, and that these, you know, two or three dozen or so middle-aged Jewish men run the world. Um, I can tell you as, as a middle-aged Jewish man uh, that <laughs> I don't know any of the Illuminati members. <laughs> But it wouldn't shock me. You guys don't all meet together? No, but it wouldn't shock me if uh, nine or ten of my tribe were actually the ones out there pulling all the strings. <laughs> Your tribe. Thank you. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm trying to make it you know, enjoyable. Now, but tell me, what, what is this deep web? You know, I mean, what is it really? You know, okay. let, let's put aside um, all, the, you know, all the fantastic versions of what this is that have been portrayed on... You know, shows like Breaking Bad, you know, the deep web is where you go to learn how to make crystal meth and how to make an atom bomb. And, you know, oh, what is it really? Or dark web or whatever. It is. Yeah, what is it really? Okay. So I'll have to, you know, put this caveat in the beginning here that I'm certainly not an expert on this particular subject. But I have. Well, you're, the, you're like the only smart IT guy that I know. And, well, you know, I'm the only one in this room. Well, so. that's true. And, <laughs> so for the purposes yeah. of this podcast, I'm just going to have to do. Yeah, you're the expert here. So Okay. So here's the thing. And maybe I might have to give a little bit of historical background here to help people really appreciate uh, you know, the, the current internet that we live in now. Back in the day before Google and Yahoo and all these other sort of search engines, back when the internet was... Uh, Composed largely of, of these websites uh, that maybe run from a person's you know small you know school or or maybe I have a, a message board that's attached to a phone number that somebody has to know in order to get to this information into my little forum that I have on my on my home computer or whatever. A lot of the internet was not hugely accessible and hugely searchable because you didn't have like 
engines like Google and Bing and Yahoo that would take large, large aggregates of all this information that they're constantly scouring uh, and adding it to their databases and then making those searchable and indexable. You didn't have like this big, giant Dewey Decimal System of data. Like It was a lot more like, you know, let's just say this whole building that you're in, Eric, is full of books. And there's a Dewey Decimal System that only cataloged like, you know, 10% of those books or whatever. All the rest of these books, they may be out there, but you don't know what any one of them does or what they, where they are or anything else like that. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's not the most perfect example in the world, but it's kind, of, it's, it's kind of the idea. So back in the day, if I wanted to get to Joe's, you know, special, you know, bulletin board system site, I would have to know the number to his modem and dial it to get, in order to get there, which made, you know, certain, you know, nefarious type of activities easier. So similarly now, if you want to keep your website off of Google, so it's not searchable and not easily findable and, you know, so on and so forth, uh, it's very easy for you to just put a mechanism on your website that says no crawl or don't search. And Google will just obey it because usually what that means in, in Google's mind is that, you know, maybe there's confidential information or maybe there's there's just data that I don't necessarily want immediately, you know, sort of, you know, added to the whole public search that I'm just going to go ahead and skip and ignore and move on. So people who post websites, um, you know, that aren't sort of searchable or indexable, or people who even go a little bit further, people who post websites using URLs that constantly change because maybe they're attached to one of these like dynamic, you know, DNS type systems, or maybe they don't even use a host name. Maybe they just go by IP addresses. So you have to know this, 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 this long series of numbers to get to their website. These are all people that unless Google or Bing or Yahoo are made aware of, you'd have to know their numbers or their, or their you know, uh, sort of domain name or their whatever in order to get to them and to find them. And because of that, and this is where people in you know the media and marketing have a way of, of, of putting terms on things that really don't give you an idea as far as what it is. Like back in the day, they used to call the internet the information superhighway. And it always... and. What in the world does that even mean? Like, it really give, gave people no conceptual understanding as far as what the internet was, but it provided this picture of, like, oh, this highway that I'm on, and, like, along the way there's shopping, and there's the, you know, like, it, it gave people this sort of vague image in their mind as far as what it was, but it really didn't give them an understanding about it. And similarly, this whole deep or dark or dope or whatever web it is gives, has this tone of this, like, this, this dark or nefarious kind of thing, but really all it is is just a large collection of websites that have, uh, for whatever, in, in various ways, uh, gotten themselves to where they're not part of the normal, you know, pages that are searched and indexed by Google and Bing and whatnot. And um, not every single one of them is like, you know, selling, you know, peyote or children. Uh, you know, what uh, that may have been a little callous. I mean, yeah, it's a bit of a stretch. That may have been a little, two, but okay. That may have been a bit, a bit, a bit callous. But, but the bottom line, it's just people who, for whatever reason, I, I, I'm posting a site that I'm not making immediately searchable. You have to know where it is in order to get to it. You can't just find it on, on Google. Um, uh, and, and again, a, a lot of these sites do do nefarious things, but not all of them do. Also, is that any different than, say, like an invitation-only dinner party that is not open to the public and you can't go and sit and hobnob with a certain celebrity unless you have a, you know, a special invitation by you know, the host? I guess one could make the argument that it's the difference between like a public and a private club, maybe, yeah. And again, not every private club, not every you know, private club that doesn't advertise itself in any way, shape, or form – uh, is doing underhanded or, or, or potentially illegal things. Granted, if you are a club that's very private and secretive and certainly makes no 
you know, uh, sort of makes no advertising as far as who they are or how to get involved, one can make a reasonable assumption that maybe they're not doing something entirely legit, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are. Yeah, and I suppose there are, you know, clubs or organizations out there that only accept new members by existing member referral or recommendation or something like that. You know, it's not like where you can, you know, open the virtual yellow pages nowadays and search for, you know, private society, you know, clubbing and, uh, you know, and go. But, uh, you know, I got to ask. Please. I, I am a huge fan of Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Okay? <laughs> I am. I Listen, every cheesy cop show, detective show, mm-hmm. and supernatural kind of show, mm-hmm. um, and anything Harry Potter, I'm, I'm into it 100%. Okay? <laughs> Love it. Can't get enough of it. Okay. All right, so I really, I'm a huge mark for Law and Order SVU. And they've had more than one episode, but one episode in particular, where a person was hosting a website with a live feed, Mm -hmm. like a streaming video, from a remote location, and he had all different ways of disguising how that location, like where the location was, and they couldn't track it down, and he was doing like these terrible things, and people would somehow find that site, however they got to it, Uh and he, you know, would pay... A fee to enter the site mm-hmm. and you know witness or view whatever you know disgusting things the writers of that show were able to come up with and yeah. you know it's trying a, to keep the podcast not, you know, it's family not friendly. It's not a common but, theme, but yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. And so, but what I want to know is 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 that stuff really out there? And again, I'm not suggesting that you're a purveyor of these things, but yeah, yeah. You know, again, you're in the IT world. I know that you keep up with modern you know technology and changes in technology. I know you read um, all sorts of different trade publications. And I know some of them deal with, you know, some of these uh, terrible scenarios or, or people that get arrested or prosecuted for using the Internet for things other than the information superhighway. Yeah. Um, you know, is that is that stuff really out there? Is it, you know, and, and how hard is it to find? I want to know, can my 12-year-old find it? No, I'm not saying for you. No, I, I just got to look like, you know, Eric, come on, dude. No, I'm saying, in other words, I have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. Uh, girls and I have a seven-year-old boy, and you know I don't watch them every second of the day when they're on the computer. Yeah, uh, they, they, I, I'm here now with you, backing up my server, trying to restore our data. My kids are probably at home on the internet. I have no idea what they're looking at or what they're reading, or mm-hmm. you know maybe who's trying to chat with them on some online chat room. Yeah, yeah. What can so I guess what I'm trying to say? Let me let me re- rephrase. I'm not necessarily asking where to find these things. What I'm asking is how. What can parents do? Are, are there like I remember something like back in the day called like Net Nanny or Surf Control or yeah, things like yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. you know? But do any do any of these really work? I mean, it seems like my kids are smarter than me at this point, and they know how to get around all that stuff. I tried to put something on my daughter's phone mo- called My Mobile Watchdog. Yeah. Okay, and she found it like in seconds, and I, either I didn't install it right, or she's just much smarter than I am today, and you know. So I, you know, my whole idea of like, you know, making sure she's not texting inappropriately and things like that. They just like blew out the window. So, you know, what, what can parents do? What can, you know, what, what can families do to protect themselves and their children from, you know, some of these terrible things out there? Okay. So a few things. Um, there are, I mean, the traditional softwares like the Net Nanny and whatnot, I, I don't feel like ever really worked particularly well because they were relatively easy to discover. And if you were fairly competent, you could figure out how to get around them. Can I stop for a second? Can just tell you again. You're yeah, not, yeah, I am. Okay. I'm sorry. Can, you know, just it's my name on the door, bitch. It's not uh, anyway. 
when, when back in the day when I was in the IT world, I used to work for Lionsgate Entertainment. Yeah. Okay. And I was tasked with trying to find some sort of internet control because there were a lot of, you know, quote unquote executives that worked in the Los Angeles office, mm-hmm. people that fancied themselves of being, you know, as being producers and TV personalities Whatever. and so on, you know, every, all the entertainment mucky mucks. Um, and there were a lot of young women mm-hmm. that worked at Lionsgate that were typically assistants to some of these executives. Yeah. And there was a huge concern that inappropriate content was being accessed on this on on our corporate internet, you mm-hmm. know, because there were no controls at that time. Yeah. I mean, again, you're I'm talking like 88, 87, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so I remember getting this thing called Surf Control. Mm-hmm. That was the software of the day. It was like $900 for the Enterprise Professional Edition of Surf Control, which never worked. And I'd say at least half of the executives that had this software installed, you know, throughout their net, our network, <coughs> you know, figured out ways around it because I would get reports of, again, like all this porno websites and stuff that people would go on on a daily basis. And so how far has our technology come now? I mean, we're, you know, what can we do? So usually when it comes to controlling and monitoring what people do, there's, uh, there's two places in which it can be done. Number one is like what you were discussing where there's uh, software that's installed on each individual computer or workstation that to some extent can monitor. Now, my favorite one for this purpose uh, is called uh, Spectre. Or Spectre is by a company called SpectreSoft, and they have a few products that make it. There's Spectre Pro, Spectre 360. But the whole principle is you install this thing, and it, it, it is the most hidden and transparent and like – People don't unless the only time I've seen them discovered is like they like if somebody installed like a particularly aggressive malware so, like anti malware software those softwares will sometimes find it but other than that like the end user will not see a trace of it if you don't want them to and what this software can do and it's got multiple modules that you can enable or disable depending on how big brother you actually want to be but it can be set up to monitor every website they visit every, uh, it can be set up to everything they search for on every search engine monitor inbound and outbound emails even from like web-based mail like like google and 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 like gmail and yahoo mail and whatnot uh (coughs) it can log instant messaging conversations it can log uh, and track facebook information like who are their top facebook friends who are the top people (coughs) post things on their pictures you know uh things like that uh it can monitor every keystroke every document they copy save print even take like camcorder type recordings of what's happening on the screen if you really want to stay on top of all of that they're doing, and, they, and lay it out for you in a time frame as far as they were on the computer between 6 and you know 10 p.m. and here's a basic timeline of their activities uh, and it's for that purpose I mean however comfortable or uncomfortable you feel like with that kind of invasion of privacy from a purely functional standpoint from a purely IT standpoint it's absolutely marvelous but obviously, again, not everyone's comfortable with that degree of monitoring. And some people may just want to simplify to something like, I just want to see what internet sites they're going to or what they're searching for. And, you know, the degree to which you disclose, hey, honey, we are, you know, keeping keeping an eye on things and whatever. That's obviously up to you as the parent or the employer. Let me, but yeah, let me ask you a question. Let's put the IT professionals, you know, stuff to the side for a minute. Okay. Okay. I mean – could you really stop yourself if you had this kind of software, say, installed at home? Yeah. And you could track, like, what your wife goes on or if I could track what my wife goes on and or my kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, could you really stop yourself at just reading it, 
taking it in as personal knowledge and then kind of letting it go. I know I couldn't. Like, I don't have the kind of personality where if I, you know, see that my wife is going on, you know, like thunderfromdownunder.com or some kind of, you know, like the new Magic Mike still images or Google image, you know, I'd lose my mind. I, I just, I'm going to say, it. I, I, you know, I couldn't hold that back. And I would risk exposing myself as a distrusting, you know, <clears throat> awful spy hard big brother kind of guy. Um, but I, you know, I, I'd have to, you know, I, I'd have to explode. I mean, I mean, you it's know, not really an IT question, but, but, I, but I, I did say, let's put the IT professionals up aside. I'm just asking you, as, as you, as David, I, you know, and for, for the for the seven people listening, I I want you all to know that you know I know David uh, both in a professional capacity, but in a personal capacity. I, I David is my friend before he's my uh, before he's a colleague or, or or a business associate, and so. Often, and you know, something tells me that a few more nights like this, Dave will be on again. Um, you know, we may segue into more of a personal discussion because we know each other for so long, and we're and we're you know we're good buddies. You know, I was yeah. at Dave's wedding. You yeah. know, for those of you that don't know, Dave and our That's right, and Dave sang at his own wedding, and uh, I've always found it interesting. And in fact, you know, now's a good time perhaps to ask. Nope. Yes, it is this question that I've been wanting to ask for a very long time. Okay. Okay. At your wedding, yes, to your brand new bride, who yes. by the way looked absolutely ravishing, yes, you sang to her, yes, but the song you sang was called "With or Without You." <laughs> Why are we bringing this? But up? I just want to know. I mean, because that's that's not the most romantic song. I mean, if I remember the U two version and those lyrics, yeah, yeah it's yeah. kind of like you know, bitch, I can take you or I can leave you. You know, it's all good to me. What what prompted that song? What on your wedding day in front of? All your guests and friends and family and loved ones, you sang your heart out to your wife, and it was beautiful, but you picked this one song. And so is there significance to that song? My, my seven listeners want to know, why are you sang with or without you to your wife at your wedding? Well, let me start off first by saying, like, the song didn't strike to me like I could give or take you. It's one of these, to me, when we first were sort of looking at it, it was one of these songs where... It's heartbreaking and it's hard to live with you, and it's heartbreaking and it's hard to live without you. But that's the, the sort of the, the struggle and the back and forth between any kind of relationship, especially the closer that you get with somebody. I don't think you're making the compelling case you think you are, but go ahead. I'm sorry. But but, but that aside, in all frankness and in all honesty, there were other songs that we were that I was perhaps going to do that maybe thematically would have fit a little bit more, but... Um, with or without you was just a better song. <laughs> and so really, Otto and I was just like, look, maybe people, we're going to confuse people a little bit. And you wouldn't be the first person to bring it up. But we're like, you know what? It's just a good song. And it was one that was in a key that I could sing reasonably well. So screw it. That's the one we're going to pick. And that really was what it ended up being. Okay. I mean, I, you know. I'm not going to lie to you. Because I, I, I've been married now, uh, like, you know, 16 years, 17 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember that my wedding song with mm. my wife was yeah. Love of My Life by mm. Queen. Who was another one of the five bands, by the way, that I can still tolerate and will listen to to this day. Yeah. Uh, may uh, May Freddie Mercury rest in peace. There never has there been another come along in the last 20 years that had the range and the absolute singing emotion that Freddie Mercury had. And this cat, Adam Lambert, that's touring with Queen now, you know, he was the... He was the guy on American Idol that you know yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. came in second, but everybody thought he should have won. And yeah, you know, yeah. he had this amazing um, sense of showmanship and and you know great vocals. And he's touring with Queen now, you know, uh, sort of in a new rendition. Yeah. But I just can't 
I can't see it. I was never fortunate enough to see Queen live in concert. You know, Freddie Mercury passed on before I ever had a chance to see them live. Mm-hmm. I have watched um, some um, Queen shows on YouTube, most notably is the 20-minute set from Wembley Stadium yeah. uh, that they did. I think it was for a Live Aid concert. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just remarkable. Remarkable. But, but my point is that the song Love of My Life by Queen uh, is really a much more traditional first dance wedding song well sorry you're mistaken though for our first dance we did dance to a song called uh, I Got You Where I Want You which thematically was a bit more appropriate but the actual song we you know, sang during the ceremony yeah, it's just a song we picked man. you know what I think of when I, hear I think you're reading too much into all this maybe I mean you know what I think of when I hear the title of a song I Got You Where I Want You mm-hmm. okay to me it's like look I don't have to try anymore like I'm not going to keep losing weight for you <laughs> right. uh, I'm going to go back to gambling, mm-hmm. and because you, you know you said I do, and therefore the quest is over. Uh, you know I, I don't. You know. Well, here's here's what I'm saying, Eric. Uh, I feel like your 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 rather base and rather negative interpretations of the songs with or without you of the song "Got You Where I Want You" are a bigger reflection on you and your outlook than they are of the songs themselves. If, I, if we're being frank here. Well, no, it's okay. You know, everybody's entitled to an opinion, I guess. <laughs> you know. um, how, By the way, how are we doing? Are, are, uh, well, we're, uh, we're almost out of time. We've okay. got a few more minutes. Okay. And, you know, my goal today was to hit the 60-minute mark. We're almost there. Okay. Um, how, how old were you when you started, you know, kind of singing, not just, wow, alive and uninterrupted, and here we go. This is Eric. Oh, hi, Anna, Dave's wife. This is really, I'm sorry, for my listening audience of seven, uh, Dave's wife, Anna, is calling into the office, and uh, we're, we're recording a podcast while we're waiting for the uh, backup to finish restoring. And w- this is really why this is so interesting, because we just finished a good eight-minute discussion on uh, Dave's choice of song that he sang at your wedding. And I had always wanted to know how he picked... With or Without You uh, by U2. And I, it's amazing. I still remember it because I was there. And I remember the wedding. And so we just went from there and we began discussing different songs and bands. And I was just getting to asking Dave now how long he'd been singing. You know, not just like for himself in the shower, but when he really decided he wanted to, you know, take a, make a go of it. And speak of the devil, Dave's lovely wife, Anna, calls looking for Dave because, again, it's now it's late. And he wasn't picking up his cell phone, apparently. So... Uh, yeah. So, uh, Dave, would you like to speak to her now on the office phone? Would you like to call back? Because we're almost done. We're almost done. Uh, I'm going to say, sweetheart, it's still restoring. I'll give you a call back as soon as I'm finished here, okay? What was that? Um, the next few minutes, okay? Yes, I will, Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll talk to you soon, my darling. Gotcha. Love you. Bye. You know, that couldn't have been better timed if we planned it. I, I, and I got to tell you, because we're, we're just about at our, at our time limit, but for my seven listeners, let me tell you that if any of you were, are old enough to remember the Cosby show, <laughs> there, there were, you know, those, the Cosby kids... And the look on Dave's face, 
right now when his wife called and he got out of the phone. He looked just like little Rudy Cosby or Rudy Huxtable, <laughs> right? Like when, you know, just got, you know, busted, you know, stealing the cookie from Theo or whatever it was. And so that was the, you know, so this is the benefit of having a live, uncut, unedited uh, podcast. I left my phone in the other room and as soon as I saw that it was her, I'm like, ah, crap, she's been calling. Ah, here it comes. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, notice that my, my wife hasn't called once and... That's because I texted her a while ago and said, "Sweetheart, I'm having a computer problem." That's that's and, because she, you got her where you want her. Well, that's right. And, you know, it's like, woman, I'll just be home when I get home. So, uh, what I'd like to do now is I will uh, will wrap up the um, the second edition of the late podcast, the Law According to Eric. Uh, today we talked about zero law, um, <laughs> but uh, before we before we go, uh, I would like to leave my podcast audience with. Uh, Again, I like to do word association as a closing segment, and so uh, so as long as Dave Martinez from Contoured Solutions is still here. Oh boy! Uh, so Dave, yeah. Instead of doing uh, the t- traditional word association, yeah, uh, I'm going to give you three words, and I want you to pick one and maybe say a little something about it, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay, fine. Okay. So the first word is uh, backup. Okay. okay. The second word is dark web. Mm-hmm. And the third word... That's two words, Beth. Well... Oh, <laughs> third word? I, you know, I think we're just going to end Fr- it right now. Uh, cl- cl- clearly, uh, Dave is not in in the mood anymore. I guess that phone call from his wife really set the tone for how... What's the, re- the third word? For how the rest of this evening is going to go. What's the third word? For how the rest of this evening is going to go. What's the third word? The third word is uh, po- my podcast is over now. <laughs> and uh, so we're going to sign off. Uh, again, uh, look for mybklawyer.com. Uh, coming soon. That website is going to be built out. It's going to be absolutely fruit by the time we're done with it. Uh, yes, I, the term fruit means like really cool or back in the day we would say rad. Okay. Or radical, but now modernly my understanding is, according to my teenage daughter, that you use the term fruit. She'd know better than I would. Okay, so the website's going to be totally fruit. Uh, it's going to have uh, some some original blog articles, some links to new articles, information about uh, bankruptcy and debt relief, and again for for those uh, for the seven of you out there listening, uh, Dave, if you would again give your the name of your company and contact information, uh, so that in the event that one of our seven users uh, listeners has a major data disaster or they need your absolute expertise, how can they get a hold of you? Okay, well our company is called Contoured Solutions. And that is uh, C-O-N, like Nancy, T-O-U-R-E-D, Solutions, and that is plural. So the website is www.contouredsolutions.com. Uh, our office number is area code 562-735-0669. Again, that's 562-735-0669. You can call us anytime for a consultation, just uh, advice or whatever you need. Okay, so again, that's David Martinez from Contour Solutions. Uh, he has the, the dubious honor of being a guest twice in a row on the Late Podcast. That's the Law According to Eric podcast. Not to be confused with the Late Show or any other trademarked item uh, or term that may be out there. Again, in our, in our coming episodes, uh, we're going to touch on uh, some new legal subjects, recent Supreme Court case decisions. Uh, we'll answer legal questions that you may have uh, that you email me uh, in ahead of time. And our goal, again, is to put these out there every couple of weeks. So 
now that I've got the next you know month's worth of content uh, wrapped up, we'll be able to focus more on building out the mybklawyer.com site and getting our podcast published. And and for those of you that are going to be downloading and listening, I appreciate it very much. Keep it coming, and we'll be back with you again soon.